Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 58. So I've got a really great interview coming at you today. We cover it all from parts of the brain to prints. So don't miss that. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to talk about expectations. Now, normally, these intros are covering some type of productivity or growth mindset type topic that I apply to music. But today, I'm going to break your expectations by not talking about any of that. So off we go. Something that has always fascinated me and also comes up briefly in today's interview are expectations and how a listener reacts when a piece of music either delivers on or breaks those expectations. We've all had that moment when we're listening to a song or we're at a show and we get super excited when something unexpected happens. Or on the opposite side of that, fully satisfied by hearing what we want. A song or an anticipated melodic or harmonic resolution, whatever it is. Think about some of the times your expectations have been used against you to keep you engaged and satisfied. How about the encore at a concert? You expect the big hit to be the closer, and when it is, you're so satisfied. Or even better, maybe the artist gives you the big hit, but they do it just the lead singer with an acoustic guitar. Then the band comes out in the last chorus for the huge epic finish. Your expectations were both fulfilled and broken all at the same time, and you can't stop talking about the show for weeks after. Or what about this? How do you think a by-the-book rom-com would do if it got to the big ending happily ever after sequence, you know, where the male lead is like racing through the streets to get to the church to stop the wedding and profess his love for his ex, but then suddenly he gets hit by a bus outside, then it cuts to the couple inside, they say I do, credits roll, movie's over. That movie probably doesn't do that great. Nobody in that theater went to see that happen. Understanding your audience and navigating their expectations obviously applies to music and art, but it goes far beyond that, too. Fulfilling or not fulfilling expectations impacts every single interaction you have every day. And it's not just your audience. It's everybody. See, it's important to understand what other people are expecting of you and also to be clear about what your expectations are of them if you want to build a career filled with engaged fans and meaningful business and personal relationships. Everybody has expectations of other people. And not realizing that you're breaking those expectations is the quickest way to sour a relationship. You've got to ask yourself, what are my audience's expectations of me as an artist? Or what are the artist's expectations of me as the producer? What are the engineer's expectations of me as the assistant? Are you meeting or breaking expectations in a way that's beneficial for that relationship? If your audience is expecting a concert and you become notorious for being late, canceling, or walking off stage, you're going to start selling less tickets. If you're a producer that never finishes a track, artists are going to stop calling. 
And if you're an assistant that's on the phone in the hallway every time the session needs something, you are for sure not getting requested by that engineer again. It's not really rocket science to get this right. You just have to think about what you'd expect if you were in the other person's shoes. It's that easy. If you can actively be empathetic to the expectations of the people you are interacting with, you're going to build healthy relationships. And if it seems more complex than that for some reason, all you need to do is communicate and manage expectations. Let's say your mixed clients are mad at you because you don't deliver a mastered, release-ready file. Well, all you have to do is say up front, I include this, I don't include that. Done. Solved. Everybody's on the same page. Now they know what to expect, and you're not setting yourself up for breaking expectations that you didn't know existed. This all seems a bit basic and a bit straight ahead. I know, it almost seems like a dumb topic to me at times. But I really think that a lot of people end up in trouble by not thinking about expectations and taking that into account when they make choices or take actions. Think about it. If this were easy, then nobody would ever say, I don't like working with so-and-so because they did this, right? And remember, just like the band who surprised you with the acoustic version of the hit, you too can meet and break expectations. In fact, you should. And by break in this case, I mean exceed. Don't just be a producer that came to the session with dope beats. Come to the session knowing the artist's ideal vocal range and bring beats that fit that. Don't be the assistant engineer in the room waiting for instructions. Be the assistant that walks over to the patch bay and picks up a cable when you see the engineer glance at the gear. So to summarize it all, people that leave a lasting positive impact on those around them are fulfilling and breaking expectations in all the right ways. Today's guest is engineer, mixer, producer, and professor, Dr. Susan Rogers. Currently, Susan is a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston, where she is also the acting director of the Berklee Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory. She holds a PhD from McGill University in Music Cognition and Psychoacoustics, and prior to her academic career, she worked for 22 years as an in-demand engineer and producer, working with artists such as David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, Rusted Root, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and also spending four years as Prince's personal staff engineer. I've been super excited about this one. She's come very highly recommended by a lot of people. So welcome to the show, Dr. Susan Rogers. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Travis? Thanks for having me here. Thanks for taking the time. I know it's busy. I mean, we booked this like weeks and weeks in advance, so I know that you're busy. It's the end of the semester for y'all. How's that panning out? Are you ready for the end? Yeah, last class is today. Berkeley is a teaching college, not a, not a research college. So that means that the faculty there, our typical load is to teach seven classes, and often it's seven different classes, seven different subjects. So it's not like the usual university or college where the teacher gets two, maybe three. Um, I've got a lot of classes to teach, but these people are so wonderful. Like these students are so great. They, they worked so hard to be at this college and they're all young musicians and they want to be record makers. And I just love them. So mm, it's a joy. I'm a former grad as well. Oh, you are? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. It's 2006. When did you start over there? 2008. Oh, I barely missed it. <laughs> yeah, just missed you. What was your major? I, it was production and engineering. So, I was. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. I missed yeah. you. <laughs> I was introduced to you through a former student, Shan. Yes. Yeah. I was mentoring him over the summer after he graduated. And my assistant actually I took classes with you. Everybody loves you. That's what I've heard. Oh, so yes. I'm super excited. <laughs> oh, it's reciprocal. I like them back. Perfect. So there's a million things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about, you know, education and listening and music cognition and obviously your engineering career. And we have to talk about Prince because my audience, I mean, they'll lose their mind if we don't. <laughs> 
So I guess we'll just do what everybody does when they talk to people, and we'll just start with your music origin story. How'd you get into music? Did you come from the playing side? Were you a music fan? Yeah, definitely not the playing side. Uh, my relationship with music has always been as a listener, and I've always been an avid listener. You know, there are those kids who know that they love music, and they know it in their bones, but they feel zero compulsion to play or sing or perform on stage. Like, that holds no attraction to them whatsoever. Yeah. The thing that they find attractive is working in music. And in particular, in my case, like many people's, uh, the idea was to make records. I wanted to be where records were being made and contribute in some way to the thing I loved so much, which was records. So yeah, I took a couple of years of piano lessons when I was a kid. It was awful on everyone. <laughs> Just I really, really wasn't into it. But man, how much I loved playing records and listening to the radio just then when I was a child and still now, 60 years later, it's very satisfying. So I think I was born to be a record maker. That's amazing. Well, how did you know that making records was a job? I mean, I feel like now, like everybody goes on YouTube, there's a million people making beats and it's very easy to know that behind the glass is a job. Like then, how did you know that that was a job? Someone who I was not especially close to gave me an album, a Sonny and Cher album <laughs> for my, I think, eighth or ninth birthday. And I wasn't that close to them because they should have known, you know, I had hip or musical taste. I was just <laughs> discovering the Yardbirds and James Brown. But they gave me this wonderful Sonny and Cher record. And on the back was pictures of the personnel who contributed to the album. And there was a picture of the sound engineer. His name was Stan. There's a little description that says, and this is our sound engineer, Stan. It looks like he's doing something really serious, but he's really playing with his train set or something like that. That was the first time I thought, wow, you know, that maybe, just maybe I could contribute to record making without having to be a musician. Now, there was also a picture of two young women on the back who made Sonny and Cher's clothes. And I just knew right away. Yeah, that's not me. I think little children know who they are. I think all of us have a little sense down deep inside of who we are. I think so. I didn't know until high school that I was mm -hmm. going to do music. So <laughs> I was late. But I guess I just didn't find it. I felt the calling early. It took a little while to get there, but I felt it at a very early age. So then my understanding is that you grew up in Southern California and that you worked your way to Los Angeles. Yeah, I was briefly stalled on the tracks due to a home life situation that didn't leave my brothers and me any options for college or anything like that. We were expected to just finish high school and get a job. Uh, that was the best we could do. So I did not finish high school. I got a job. I got married and it ended up being a really bad idea. I was only 17 years old. Oh, wow. So once I was able to extricate myself from that mistake, at the age of 21, I moved with a roommate to Hollywood and we said, all right, let's begin. And she, it's funny because the recording studio seemed like the place to be. For me, I wanted to learn to be an engineer. For her, honestly, unabashedly, she wanted to marry a rock star. That was, that was the deal. And, and she was very attractive redhead. And she would wear dresses and high heels to the studio at working as an intern and eventually to work her way up to the assistant engineer position. But uh, she refused to align the tape machine because she said with her Southern accent, she said, I'm a lady. I wear dresses. 
<laughs> so that was the end of her engineering career. She did end up marrying a musician, but I met people there at the studio and eventually got my first industry job at a place in Hollywood called Audio Industries Corporation, where I became an audio technician repairing consoles and tape machines. Oh, wow. Okay. So you were on the technical side, soldering iron in hand, repairing stuff. Did you have any experience with that as a child or growing up? You just learned it all there. No, none. Yeah, I I couldn't have told you one end of a battery from the other, but I wanted it so desperately that with the little bit of money that I had, I was able to go to this wonderful store in Los Angeles. It's no longer there. It was called Op-Amp Books, and it served the entertainment industry. It was just all the technical books for film and television and the audio industry. It was this packed, groovy little store, and you'd go in there and you can buy anything you want on basic audio electronics and microphones and acoustic techniques, just all the manuals. That's really cool. So I stocked up and got the books that I needed. I I sent away to the U.S. Army for their army manuals. I told a lie to the army recruiting office and said that I was going to join the army. And they sent me their electronics manuals. So on my own nights and weekends, I studied like a freak every spare minute. I, I would take those books around with me. So if I had 60 seconds of spare time I would study. And on the job, they were also training me up. So yeah, I worked really hard. That is truly knowing what you want to do. So you were sound like you're at this age, even very quick to learn self-starter. Were you good in school? I know you said you didn't have an opportunity to finish because of family situations. Would you have gone high school, college, or it was always like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was smart and I liked school. And um, my mother passed away after a long illness. And it was just so financially devastating to a family that there were simply no resources left after she passed away. For my brothers and me, it was every man for himself. So we had to make do with what we could. They opted to go into the commercial construction trades and and they had led very good lives. But I ultimately decided, I want to see if I can do this thing. But I always harbored in the back of my mind that if I were ever successful in music, I'd like to try my hand at going to college. And ultimately, I was able to do that. All right. My bits of research are all tying together now. That's that's how these things usually go. So you're working on the technical side. I wanted to ask you a question about that, since that's kind of how you got your foot in the door. And I know I've met other people that have got into the studio world that way. Do you ever feel like there's something missing in like today's computer-based era where like kids are making amazing music, but they have no idea like about the electronics that created the boxes that they're emulating that they're never going to touch, or maybe they will touch? Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything lost there or is it just a different world? Yeah, I do think there's something lost. I'll quote my, um, I had a very genius boyfriend and uh, we were living together in 1980 when the Game Boy came out. Heard of a Game Boy? Oh, yes. I had a Game Boy. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I don't know when it disappeared and what generation knows it, what generation doesn't. But the Game Boy came out and it's a big popular toy. And the boyfriend, John Sacchetti, was looking at an ad and he said, we've finally reached the era where kids can no longer take apart their toys and see how they work. No longer take apart your favorite toy and see the mechanism that causes it to work. Yeah. The mechanism is integrated. It's uh, John studied things like very large scale and ultra large scale integration, circuit chips, the design of advanced micro devices and Fairchild Semiconductor. He'd get their technical manuals and he'd learn about the inner workings of these VLSI and ULSI chips. That was his thing. <laughs> but looking at the chip, you don't see the knee bone connected to the shin bone. You don't see a mechanism. No. 
And once we entered that era, technicians like myself could do component level repairs on tape machines and consoles. You trace the signal with an oscilloscope with a voltmeter and you find the damaged component. Could be a capacitor, could be a blown resistor, could be an operational amplifier, an op amp, it could be transistor, it could be any number of things. Find it, pull out the bad component, solder in the new one, bam, oh, you're off to the races. But now, <laughs> the same thing with cars. Oh, and yeah. I imagine fancy washing machines so much of its mechanism is controlled by an algorithm. While you're saying it, I think to myself, I never took any of my toys apart. Yeah. You know, they were all like put together and there was yeah. nothing to do in there. And there's so many people. There's nothing to see. Yeah, there's so many people I've talked to on this show that, you know, they got fascinated by like taking their dad's tape player apart and like right. putting things back together. And that's not a gateway to engineering anymore. <laughs> yeah, I remember one of my very first toys was a chatty Kathy doll and you pull a string on its back and it would talk, you know, feed me or change my diaper or right. whatever it was it says. And uh, the first chance I got, I took that sucker apart because inside <laughs> was a little stylus and a little plastic, a record. There was a record oh, inside of it. Yeah. So you pull the string and all it does is move the stylus over to the next ID and it plays the next five or six things that it said. But it's so much fun. You know, you take the back off of it and you pull the string and you watch, oh, there it goes. That was so interesting to see how your toys work. That's so fast. I never would have thought, yeah, like a little record in there. That's amazing. That's good. In the old days, they used to put records in cereal boxes, thin plastic records, but it would be a playable 45. It would be inside your cereal box. It'd be sponsored by record labels and stuff. And someone's record would be inside the cereal box. <laughs> You just, oh, you're having your morning cereal and you pull the record out. I mean, cool or what? That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really good. Now it's just a link at the bottom of an email. Right. Scan the QR code, which is cool itself. That's all really cool, but still. It's just a different era of technology now. Yeah. Okay, so back to your career. That's That'll be our first of many tangents, I'm sure. So you're not working in studios on the engineering side. You're on the technical side. You ended up working with Graham Nash and Crosby Stills in their mm -hmm. studio, right? Yeah, Crosby Stills and Nash. Uh, Graham and David were partners in a studio called Rudy Records in Hollywood. And I had been going there frequently to repair things that went down, you know, during the course of a session. And several times they asked me to consider joining them. And finally, one day I said yes. And I became their studio maintenance tech. I think I joined them in like 81. And that was the first time I had the chance to actually observe sessions in progress. Sessions are normally closed, so it's not like I hung out there. That wouldn't have been cool. But sometimes they'd say, oh, the tape machine's acting funny. Can you just come down, you know, so you're here if it causes us any trouble? And then I could be there while artists like Jackson Brown and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And at one point, the Eagles were in the studio. A lot of the West Coast L.A. scene, Bonnie Raitt was another one who, who used nice. to come by frequently. That's really good. So then I'm thinking about like my time at Berkeley and I remember signal flow was like the first thing and I'm sure it still is the first thing that you instill on people. But coming from the tech side, the signal flow thing must have been, you probably had your head wrapped around that. So it was really just the use of the equipment that you were trying to take on at that point, right? Yeah, I knew the signal flow quite well at this point, but I had never 
artfully used it. Right. I'd never used it as an engineer does. I knew how to do that, but there's more than just knowing the signal flow. You have to, there has to be a, a decision making mechanism. You have to decide should it be this mic or that mic? Should it be positioned here or there? Does it need EQ or doesn't it? And then, not to mention all the things you needed to know about analog tape. Different brands of tape have a different sound. Different tape machines have a different transfer function, which is dependent on the tape's speed as well. Whatever its curvature is, its harmonic distortion, it's going to be an octave higher at 30 ips compared to 15 ips. So there's this whole transfer function thing you had to learn that I was not experienced in. Did you find that a lot of engineers preferred to use a specific formulation because they kind of understood that sound? Or did you find a lot of people change tapes by style or genre project? Depending on how rock and roll you were. Some of the more conservative engineers, they picked a brand and they stuck with it. But some of us, especially the beginners, we knew that scotch tape, for example, had a kind of a grittier upper mid. And you'd want your scotch for a rock or an alternative indie, a punk record. You'd want scotch for that, but you'd want the smoother Ampex for a different kind of record, maybe a pop record or something that was going to be a little bit softer in tone. So you choose the brand based on the transfer function. That was part of the art of engineering. That's cool. Yeah, I've cut nothing to tape um, after like whatever, one or two courses at, <laughs> at yeah. Berkeley. So, I mean, uh, you know, I've loaded some tapes up, but I've never been in charge of putting stuff down to tape. I teach it as an elective at Berkeley and uh, it's very popular. The kids are really into it. Is it no longer like a, when I was there, there was a couple classes you had to do to like a track. Is that no longer? No, it's too hard to get the tape stock. It's just too hard. And not to mention, you have to keep the machines running. It's hard for the tech crew. So basically it lives as an elective and a kind of a fun thing. That's cool though. I think that's better because then you get the people that really want to get in there and do it. Yeah. Do you guys yeah. do tape alignment as well in there? I teach it to them, but I just give them a balloon ride over it. Okay. It's too time consuming and they don't really, this day and age, they don't really need to know it the way you had to in the old days. It's just a signal processing device now. It's going to give you a harmonic distortion, a sound that digital will not give you. You know, just like light soaks into film stock. When you watch a film, you see softness, you know, around the edges where the difference between light and shadow, it's soft, it's blurred a little bit because the light is actually saturated the film stock to varying degrees. But in digital video, you've got pixels and they're projecting at you. He's got great contrast, great saturation of color, but it's bright and it's harsh. Likewise, in analog tape, the waveform is actually, it's soaking into the particles on the magnetic tape. It's sinking into the storage medium, the way film does. Whereas in digital, you got got yourself a one or a zero, and nothing <laughs> in between. That's it. And you know, so when the when the symbols decay, or when you're hearing the tails of your reverbs, you get down to that least significant bit, and it's like poof. Okay, nothing exists anymore. <laughs> Where, whereas with analog, your symbols decay into that hiss, that sweet hiss. Yeah. Of tape, it makes eminent sense for us to keep analog around for its sound. You don't need it for storage anymore. Why would you? That would be foolish, but you need it for its sound. Yeah. I always want to get like 
just a really awful tape deck to just run stuff through like you said, as a signal processor. But yeah. if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Okay, so let's uh, we'll jump forward a little bit. Now, I might be incorrect, but I believe my understanding is that your first recording session in the engineering chair was with Prince. For all intents and purposes, yeah. So I had done a couple of little things. Our assistant engineer at Rudy Records was often booked up on other sessions. And so every once in a while I would assist. I certainly remember doing the odd overdub or two. But for all intents and purposes, my first real engineering experience was when Prince hired me in 83 as a technician. I did tech work in his home studio to get him up and running. He was just off the 1999 tour, getting ready to do Purple Rain. He needed his gear to be running perfectly. So I was hired. But once I finished getting the studio up and running, he just put me in that engineering chair, assuming, or maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know, that he didn't care, the difference between a technician and an engineer. He had his own sound. He was his own producer. He knew exactly what he wanted. All I had to do is help him get it. Yeah. So the fact that you were kind of not inexperienced, but you didn't have like kind of a set of rules Mm -mm. that you had built up, was that exciting to be just kind of like (laughs) doing whatever you want? Or was there like a little bit of fear in there where you're like, oh my God, I need to do this really great for Prince. Was it freeing or was it kind of like, oh no. Well, technically terrifying is exciting. (laughs) So, (laughs) So yes to both. It was terrifying and exciting, but... There's no way that I could have failed because, as I said, he knew what he liked. And if I placed a mic and he didn't like the sound of it, he'd let me know right away. So I kept Signal running and I followed his directive, you know, mic up this, that and the other thing, get a sound on them. I'd get a sound. If he didn't like something, we'd change it. If he did, off you go. So (laughs) I kind of learned just by, you know, that yes or no, almost like an eye test. You know, you go to the eye doctor. What's better, this or this? This or this. What's better, microphone here or microphone there? Whatever makes him happy is better. So subsequently, while I was there, I learned his ear. I learned how he liked his sounds to be manipulated. After I left Prince, I discovered the problem with that. He had a very unique ear. He was kind. And I learned that I couldn't just take his sound and apply it to other artists. He worked differently. His timbres, his instrument choices, his style of playing, his hands on the instrument were different than other people's. So as uh, one of Prince's later engineers, a fellow named Dylan Dresdow said, you had to unlearn Prince. After you left him, you had to unlearn Prince because he will spoil you for everyone else. So it was great. I learned engineering from one of the greatest musical minds of our generation. But after that, I had to continue learning engineering for for other mere mortals. For other mere mortals. For people that only played one or two instruments instead of instead yeah. of ten. Well, that's actually interesting. Something that like I know that I, I always tell people and something that I thought that 
I used to do a lot of songwriting pop sessions and engineering mm. for people is always to like work as fast as possible and just to never be a barrier and to just always like let that artist get their idea out. And I feel like yeah. that's how it must have been with Prince. Like the whole goal was for Prince to go from zero to 60 as fast right. as possible, right? Yeah. That's the gig. Since I've studied neuroscience, now I've come to know a little bit more about the neurobiology of creativity. And I've come to recognize that Prince is what they call a hyper-creative. And that's someone whose brain really never shuts off. And the ideas just keep coming and coming and coming. And all my years in the music business, including my years uh, at Berkeley, I've only known two, Prince and one other. And I'm very close to the other one. When you work with a hyper-creative you're working with a rare bird. But in Prince's <laughs> case, he didn't write music. He didn't demo music. His songs were always coming and he had to work so quickly because we had to take a song from the downbeat to the final mix in the course of one long session. It might be 20 hours or 24 hours, 48 hours on many, many occasions. Oh, wow. And then as soon as he was done, there'd be another song in the pipeline. So he worked really fast because they were constantly coming. It was grueling for me, and yet it was just so damn thrilling. I was with my favorite artist in the whole world, and I was making records that I knew would be listened to. Uh, there's nothing better than that. That's amazing. Can we talk more about the the hyper-creative? Like, what mm. defines a person as a hyper-creative? Is just unstoppable flow of information popping out of their brain? <laughs> yeah, kind of that. You know, our brains are symmetrical, so it's, it's got the longitudinal fissure that divides it into the left and right halves. And there's all these different structures. So I think people have heard about the hippocampus and the amygdala and the different lobes of the brain. And they're symmetrical. There's left one and the right one. So we've got this little structure. I love this little thing. <laughs> so, so cute. Uh, we've got a little nucleus called the precuneus. And the precuneus, especially the one on the right-hand side, because for most people, the right hemisphere is more responsible for the unusual in our lives. Left hemisphere, because most of us are right-handed, controls the quotidian, the daily. Right hemisphere is the more emotional or creative stuff. Anyway, you're, let's say you've got a, a creative task to perform. You're with a client in the room and you've got a song to write. You've got a few hours and you've got to write a song. Your right precuneus needs to kind of open up its little gates and allow new ideas to flow. And those new ideas flow, and they come, and you're snatching at little bits of information that you heard recently, or you, something you saw in a dream, or something that inspired you, or another song you heard. Just little bits floating around, and the precuneus will go, okay, all right, all right, good, good. And these little bits will come floating through. But as soon as one comes floating through that you like, yeah, a song about trees with people's initials carved into them, and then the heart, and then the tree grows up, and those initials distort, and maybe now your initials are linked to someone else's initials just because the tree grew up. Okay, cool, that's an idea for a song. What happens is the precuneus shuts its little gate, and you move from art to craft. You move from original thought to working your idea. Okay, it's going to be about the tree, and it's going to be about the hearts, and okay, so what should the lyrics be? And then you get more specific, and you drill down to that song, and the precuneus stops. In folks who are hyper-creative, the precuneus shows reduced inhibition, meaning it's a leaky gate. It stays open. It doesn't shut. Someone who's hyper-creative will get to work, but is always open to new ideas coming along to change the work in progress. They have a harder time separating relevant from irrelevant information. They're better equipped 
to really stretch for new ideas because literally the gate does not close. When you meet someone like that, and I'm certain that Prince was one, it's one of the reasons why he had to work so fast and put all of us, especially himself, through this grueling pace because it wouldn't stop. I remember one time we were working at his home studio and we just finished, you know, the sun was up. We'd been up 24 hours. That was about the norm. And the sun was coming up and I'm finishing up in the studio. He goes upstairs to go to bed. He comes back down in his pajamas and he had that look on his face that I knew so well. And he said, <laughs> could you go again? Could, could you go again? And I always said, yes, yes, of course, of course. And then he kind of said, I'm sorry, I, I was just brushing my teeth, you know, to get into bed. And uh, another song came. This is him talking and thinking to myself, oh, no, God, please, I'm really tired. <laughs> I just want to go to bed. But that song just kept coming and he was religious and he believed that if it comes to you, you must express it. Came downstairs and we went again. For another 20 plus hours to get the next one out. Quite often. Yeah, a 48 hour session was not uncommon. I will say that. Not uncommon. With like a little bit of break or just like we're just you're working the whole time. You're working the whole time. That is amazing. No. So what you have to do is drink coffee, but kind of judiciously. You don't want too much. You're going to get wired. You have to drink a lot of water, brush your teeth, and fake yourself. And don't look outside. Don't, don't look at the sunlight. <laughs> don't ever you look don't, outside. You don't, don't, do don't, don't, don't go outside. You don't want to know where the sun is in the sky. It's like living in the biodome or something. You just you don't want to know. You have to trick your body. And, and it's doable. In your 20s, it's, it's quite doable. Uh, yeah, I've been through some long ones. My, I never hit 48, but I've had some upper 20s and uh, yeah. I can barely do 12 now. <laughs> yeah, when you get older, it's not as Don't easy. tell anybody. <laughs> I, is the hyper creative, what was the piece of the brain? The, oh, it's um, so cute. Uh, it's called the precunius. The precunius. One of the things that's really cute about it, this was studied fairly recently. FMRI, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Study, this is out of Wake Forest in North Carolina, Uh, had people lay in the scanner and they presented them music that they had rated as liked, disliked, or favorite. So participants were asked to bring in their favorite song or two, and then they had some music that they liked and some they didn't. And uh, the researchers watched what the activity that was going on in the brain, listening to music in these three categories. When the brains were listening to liked and favorite music, the precunius increased its connections to a network called the default network. The default network is the network that gets active when we're mind wandering. When we go into our own heads, it's the network that's associated with our sense of self, our little private happy place, our private heads, our mind wandering heads. The precunius is, hey guys, check this out. (laughs) And it increases its connections. to the default network, and you go to your happy place listening to music that you like. But when participants were listening to music that they disliked, it cut itself off from the network. It isolated itself. It said, oh, oh no, not for us. Do not process. Do not process. Do not process. And it's so funny to think that there's a structure in the brain that's deciding whether or not you like this record. It's so cool. That is so fascinating. But it's all part of you. And it does kind of feel like that. You know, when you're listening to music you don't like, it almost feels like, I don't want this in my body. I don't want this in me. I do not want 
That's the precunious. <laughs> is there a precunious equivalent to like hyper-analytical people? I don't know. I don't know that much about it. Okay. Uh, I've only learned these things fairly recently. Recently, I've been uh, doing more reading on the default network, and that came up. Default network is a great name for that. <laughs> it's interesting. It's, it's thought by some to be just a temporary name, but it is a network of nuclei that gets activated when we're thinking about something other than what we're doing, which, according to research, 30 to 50% of the time, people are thinking about something other than what they're doing. We're constantly going back and forth between external tasks and goals and just being in our own heads. It's what we do. Can we just do like a quick couple minutes of post-Prince? You said mm -hmm. you kind of had to unlearn Prince and kind of change your sound. How did your career progress from there? Well, I left Prince, left Minnesota in early 88. And honestly, because he had sort of been my only client, I really didn't know who would hire me, if anyone. I, I honestly... Even though you made Prince records. Yeah, I was so naive because I was naive to the world of engineering. I only knew his. So I didn't know maybe they'd hire me somewhere as an assistant engineer. I mean, I thought about these things seriously. Maybe I could go to work for a radio station. And then I got a call from the Jacksons, the family, uh, Michael's brothers, and they were making an album called 2300 Jackson Street. And they invited me to come out to Encino and live at the family house for a few months and help them make this record. So I went out there and we had a great time. I like those guys. We had a really good time. Michael wasn't at home. He was building Neverland and he was on tour for, I think, maybe the Bad Album. Anyway, I had spent time with those guys for a few months, had a really, really good time. And then after I finished with them, I began to think, yeah, I think there will be people who will hire me. Then at that point, I got a manager who introduced me to the great producer, Tony Berg, and, and my career really kind of took off. I engineered for Tony on several records, but working with Tony, I was now in the world of alternative indie, and I'm watching a producer work, a real producer, an expert producer, and I'm learning how to produce by observing him. So I, I did that for producing, engineering, and mixing for, for 12 years after Prince, all the way up to the year 2000. Very cool. What was the first, if you can remember, one of the first things that like really stuck out with your time with Tony where you were like, oh, wow, this is a producer doing his or her thing? Yeah, everything about Tony, everything. <laughs> he's a, he's kind of a Hollywood baby. His family is in the business. One of his brothers, Scott, has won the Pulitzer Prize and Tony's dad was a screenwriter. So Tony knows everyone in the music scene in Los Angeles and lived in Brentwood where a lot of producers like Mitchell Froome and T-Bone Burnett lived. And so he just was connected to everybody. He's really smart, a great guy, a wonderfully moral and decent human being, incredibly smart. But the things that stood out to me was Tony had had a formal education, went to college. And even when he'd get upset, he'd use perfect grammar. <laughs> <laughs> we were driving, we were in the car going somewhere and he was driving and I was in the passenger seat and we're fooling around with the radio and he said, stop it, you're making me drive badly. <laughs> I was so impressed, you know, this man, the way he took business calls and the way he greeted these celebrities and many, many celebrities came over to his house, you know, to drop in on our sessions. And he was so gracious and so hip and just knew how to interface not only with record executives, but also mainly with artists, how to talk to artists, how to have 
that mind meld that's necessary for being a good producer. I learned all that from him. That's amazing. So I'm always like reading like articles or listening to other podcasts in preparation. So I read that you left the industry after Bare Naked Ladies one week. You produced that record. It was a huge hit. And then after having this huge hit, that was your exit. I guess you said earlier that if you were ever successful in music, you would go to college. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you've had this successful career. Is that the moment that you were like, I'm going to go back and do the college thing now? Yeah. You know, I got into the music business because I felt a calling. It was a powerful one too. And people talk about going into a monastery or convent or something like that. They say, I feel a calling. And I definitely had that calling to go into record making. It just talk about the default network. It was all I fantasized about. When we let our brain off the leash and we let our brain go and frolic in the dog park of its dreams, it's going to go to those places that make it happy, the fantasies that make it happy. Record making sustained me uh, with those fantasies for decades. But at some point in my late 30s, you started having some other fantasies and they were about uh, the natural world and in particular consciousness in non-human animals and started reading books on it when I could and fantasizing about it. And then eventually the fantasies turned into wearing a lab coat and looking through a microscope. And and I began to think, you know, I think I'd really like to work as a scientist in order to make that happen. Hmm, I didn't even have a high school diploma. To get a PhD, I would have to do at least eight straight years of school at a minimum. Um, Where am I going to get the money for that? Well, you say yes to a band like Bare Naked Ladies and that'll work out for you because they're so great. <laughs> uh, I said yes to them and we did. And it went quintuple platinum, a very successful record. I listened to it after I read that article before I started and I was like, oh my God, I've heard this song so many times. Like the whole thing just <laughs> came into my head. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay, so that was your opportunity to kind of just go down to career number two yeah. and to become a scientist and get a PhD. Yeah, I got my GED, the graduate equivalency diploma in lieu of a high school diploma. And then I took the ACT and I got into the University of Minnesota. And those four years, those undergraduate years were, they say college is the happiest years of your life. It was for me. I loved it so much. I loved it so much. What a luxury it is to sit in a seat and have people teach you things. How good is that? (laughs) And to do that for four years, just crazy great. I studied neuroscience and I studied behavioral psychology and cognitive psychology as well, but a dual major of psychology and neuroscience. Then from there, I got accepted into McGill. McGill up there in Montreal has the world's foremost concentration of music perception and cognition researchers. It's kind of a hub for music perception and cognition research. So I was accepted. I joined Daniel Levitin's lab And about a year after I joined, he decided to write a book that became very popular. This is your brain on music. It became a New York Times bestseller. I was in his lab and was privileged to study with him. But I also was studied under the world's foremost psychoacoustician, the great Stephen McAdams. So I got some marvelous doctoral training from those folks in Montreal. I don't know a lot about McGill. I know Massenburg was teaching there a bit, right? Yeah. They seem to have a very like scientific approach to music up there. I guess you said the music perception. Yeah, their music department, in conjunction with the psychology department, they've got a research institute up there called Kermit, C-I-R-M-M-T, Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Music, Media, and Technology. 
It's well-funded by the Canadian government. So you've got kids up there, graduate students, who pool their resources. Kids in the music department will get together with the kids in the psychology department to design new musical instruments or new recording techniques or immersive technologies and things like that, investigating it from the brain science perspective as well as the music theoretic aesthetic perspective. It's a very strong, strong program. Very cool. It's a cool thing to have an opportunity to do. Yeah. Just for our audience, music cognition and psychoacoustics, what's the description for the layman that's unfamiliar? Yeah, they're sister disciplines. They're complementary. Psychoacoustics deals with the bottom-up half, and psychoacoustics deals with the ear and how it works and how pressure variations in air become transduced into mechanical vibrations in the cochlea, which is then converted into ones and zeros, converted into nerve spikes or the absence of a nerve spike. So we've got these essentially A to D converters in our ears that are taking the analog information of graded pressure variations and making a signal, a composite signal with spikes. And then that's <laughs> going up the chain through our wiring, our auditory nerve bundle, to arrive just above our ears at the primary auditory cortex. And once it gets up there, so smart, the brain has to perform all these operations. The auditory cortex first has to figure out, what was that? It has to do a timbre analysis. What was that sound? What made that sound? And then it has to send that signal to other regions of the brain to decide, is it music? Is it speech? Is it something I need to interact with? Is that sound approaching me? Is it going away from me? Is this something I like? Is it something I dislike? So our auditory scene analysis is happening very, very quickly. And it's sending messages all over the brain for us to decide whether we like this or we hate this, or this is dangerous, or this is sweet, or, or just whatever. So by the time we get up the chain and we get to that decision-making process, that's where music cognition takes over. So music cognition has to do with music and memory, music and emotions. How does that happen? Learning music, performing music. What are the differences between a novice and intermediate and an expert piano player, let's say? What are the acoustic differences? Can those things be measured? Development, what do babies know and when do they know it? The different music systems of the world. Why does French music sound French and English music sound English? There's reasons for that. So all of that is studied in music cognition. So psychoacoustics, the bottom-up nuts and bolts, cognition, the knowledge, and the top-down processing. Very cool. I've always had your brain on music on my reading list, and uh, I have not read it yet, unfortunately. I tried to do the Audible book over the last week in preparation for our interview, but I didn't get that far. It was a busy week. <laughs> and also, it's just the Audible thing. It's not clicking. I'm, I listened to like two hours of it, and I can't remember what was said. I like, I need to read it. I can't. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all in favor of it, you know, because I love books so much. And before we sign off, I would like to talk about the book that I've just completed yes. writing and that will be released next year. But for a book, for me, I got to hold it in my hands. And I like the tactile experience of a book. Well, I have a couple questions. And I definitely I want to talk about your book as well. In your opinion, when you're teaching engineering and production in the various courses you're teaching at Berkeley, where's your music cognition and your listening experience? Are you trying to impart any of that onto future engineers and producers in ways that they can think about the sounds that they're creating or the records that they're making with more of a, a scientific approach? I'd want to be really clear about this for your listeners. 
when you're actually in the creative process, when you're in the studio, when you're making music or a musical object, you're not thinking about any of that technical stuff. You shouldn't be anyway. You can't make music entirely from the neck up. You know, you've got to make music from the heart and the hips and the belly button. You've got to be feeling it. You're in touch with something else when you're pushing sound around, pushing instruments around. You're totally in a creative mode. What I can do for students, and I enjoy doing very much, is when we're offline, when we're in the classroom and we're not actually making a record, we can talk about the listener. We can talk about the listener's brain and the function of music for listeners. We can talk about why each listener has a unique listener profile that suits them. It rewards them. It's their unique listener profile that formed over the course of their lifetime and is what it is. You can't force people to like something. Uh, Their (laughs) precunious is deciding for itself whether or not they like something. So uh, we talk about how to make a living as a record producer. We talk about the audience, how to find your audience, how to not worry about pleasing everybody, you never will, to find your people, your listeners, the ones who are going to like the music that you're doing, the ones who want, who actually want what it is you're doing. Don't go for liking. Liking won't get you anywhere. Liking is, yeah, that's pretty good. I'll listen to it later. Wanting is, I must have that in my life and I can't wait to hear it again. So we talk about how to get that, how to make music that makes people think, yeah, that song, that's the music of me. You just played and sang and wrote the music of me. And I want that. And that's mine now. (laughs) That's the reaction you want. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit like the thousand true fans. Like you want the people that really love your music to love your music. You don't need 10 billion fans. You need a thousand diehards, 10,000. You need the people that really resonate with it. And those are the ones that you want to create for. And there might be some other people, but... Those are the the real ones. It's like being a chef and like operating a restaurant. You've got your competition. You've got your market. You've got your price point. The food that you're going to serve if your restaurant is adjacent to a college campus is going to be very different than if your restaurant is downtown or if it's out in the suburbs. You know, you've got a different audience with different needs for food. They need food to function for them in in a different way. So it's vitally important that record makers understand their audience and understand how the music you're making might function in their lives. We talk about that a great deal. There's probably something that would be a far longer conversation than the amount of time we have left. But something that's always fascinated me is making records is like fulfilling or not fulfilling like listener expectations and how like you can really like guide somebody through a mix with making things too loud or not loud enough or giving the listener what they're expecting or giving the listener what they're not expecting and how like all those things can work together to like really make somebody like, oh, I love this song. And why? I don't know, because it didn't give me what I wanted. It surprised me. And I think that stuff is just so cool. Yeah. The art of mixing is where production meets engineering. It's half craft and it's half art and it's beastly difficult. It just really takes years to become a good mixer. You need to have a musical mind, but not too musical. You need to have a technical mind, but not too technical. It's a very specialized skill because there's a certain alchemy that happens when all the individual components of a performance come together, an alchemy that can or can't happen. If it happens the right way, that song is going to be working. And when people listen to it, 
they're not hearing the mix. They're not hearing anything that the technical folks did. All they're hearing is the music. Music is an emergent property of these individual elements. But to get to that point is hard. Yeah, it is. It's like painters, you know, painting something that makes people think, wow, that's worth millions. That's brilliant. Yes, yes. Well, before we hit our closing questions, I know that you mentioned that you were working on a book when we first started chatting a couple months ago. Can you tell us what it's about? What can oh, you tell yeah. us? I was approached by a co-author a couple of years ago. He's a neuroscientist and he studies consciousness and he writes books with scientists. And he asked if I wanted to write a book on music. And I said, well, no, because I'm not an expert on music, but what I am an expert on is music listening. That's what I do. What I've been. We can write about that. So we did. The book is called This Is What It Sounds Like, which is a little homage to Prince's When Doves Cry. This is what it sounds like. It's talking about the listener profile, how it forms, and seven dimensions of that listener profile. Each of us has our own unique sweet spot on each of these seven dimensions. Three of them are aesthetic dimensions, four of them are musical dimensions, but there's the dimension of authenticity, above the neck, music, Bach, Beethoven, just pure great genius technique, or below the neck, gut bucket feelings, Howlin' Wolf doing smokestack lightning, little Junior Parker's version of Mystery Train, speeds up really badly, drummer's so not in the pocket. Oh, to me, it feels so good. So there's a dimension of authenticity in which all listeners have a preference. There's a dimension of realism. Uh, Certain records are realistic. The ones I like are realistic, meaning they're made by traditional acoustic instruments. When I listen to that music, I can picture the studio and I can picture those instruments because those instruments actually physically exist. That's a realistic record. Abstract records are made by software synths or computer-generated instruments. Some of them are chimeras. There's no physical correlate for this thing. And when I listen to that record, I can't picture what it is because it doesn't physically exist. That's an abstract record, which is very popular today, uh, but not for everyone, just like in the visual arts. And then there's that dimension of novelty. Some of us want to be surprised when we listen to music. We want a heavy dose of, I did not see that coming. And, and others just can't stand that. They want a really familiar form. They want your classic rock, classic folk, classic blues. They like the classic form. Give me a great performance and great sounds in a classic form. Others are like, I don't care about the sounds. Play me something I've never heard before. So there's that. The musical dimensions are the ones we know, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. So we discuss that whole thing. And then at the end of the book, talk about the default network and your little precunious and talk about how your listener profile is connected to the dopaminergic reward system. And when a record matches some of your sweet spots, your brain likes it. Yeah. It likes what it likes. We should never be a music snob. It's true. We like what we like. You're removing uh, guilty pleasure from being even a thing. It's just you can, you know, your brain likes it. The book is structured a little bit like a record pull in that uh, my co-author and I are presenting records of many, many different genres of music and many different decades. We're talking about music, but not to talk about our taste. It's not about us. It's about the reader's taste. But we are trying to show readers, here's how a producer listens 
to a record. Here's how a brain science scientist listens to a record. And the third perspective is that of a non-musician. I am a non-musician. I can only listen synthetically, not analytically to music. That's different from our kids at Berkeley who can listen analytically. Yeah. I was listening to your chat with Andrew Sheps this morning in preparation. And, and then I got super nervous and I was like, oh my God, I'm not as prepared as this, mm-hmm. this conversation is amazing. But uh, one of the common threads that I noticed in that conversation is that you very much identify with listening and you see the value and the importance of being a great listener in a music career. So it doesn't surprise me that that's what your book is about. Mm. Yeah, my whole relationship with music has been, you know, a receiver of it on the listening end. I've made a career out of being a listener. I'm hoping to encourage people who maybe they make records at home just as a hobby or maybe uh, they just want to learn a little bit more about the brain science of music listening, or maybe they're just curious. I'm hoping that they'll find takeaways in that book. I think they will. Is it out now or is it about to no, be out? No, it'll be out fall of 2022 on Norton. All right, I will bring it up on the show in fall of 2022 and make sure everybody remembers. Okay. But uh, before we go, I have two questions that I ask everybody on the way out. One I mean, this question is probably very obvious to our listeners, but I'm going to ask it anyway because those are the rules of the show. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah, I think you're always redefining it as your life changes and you see what's possible. So your career, you know, you can think of it as climbing up a mountain. And as you climb up a mountain, the higher you get, the better your viewpoint. You can see more of other (laughs) mountains the higher up you go. So success to me when I was a technician was, I just want to be a really capable technician. Have people say, she's good. She shows up to fix your stuff. It gets fixed. And then I became an engineer and I thought, I really just want to, success is being a, a noteworthy and capable engineer. And then you work as a producer, then later as a student and now as an author. So I, I'm constantly redefining what success looks like based on what I think is possible for me. Our dreams don't always come true, but you do want to try and do those things that you think, maybe I could do this. Seeing the next highest peak is like a really interesting way. I love that perspective. And I'm always encouraging people of like the possibility. It's like, if it's really easy and you can really imagine how to attain it, then like there's got to be something further than that. Like just go for that thing that is possible, but you don't quite have your finger on how to do it yet. Those are the things that you should be going after. Yeah. I like how the philosopher neuroscientist Sam Harris said, a definition of a good life involves waking up every day to work that is interesting and difficult. Your work should be interesting enough to get you out of bed in the morning, and it should be difficult enough to keep you at it yes, and not going to bed too early. Interesting and difficult is great. All of us have our own appetite for how much we like to be challenged by our work. Some of us like it more than others. So success is getting what you want, I think, ultimately. Awesome. And the last question that I have for you before we go is uh, what right now is your current biggest goal that you can share with us? And Mm -hmm. what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm retiring from Berkeley after next semester. Oh, wow. Next semester is my last semester. So in the summer, I'm moving. I'm looking around the Hudson River Valley and hmm, uh, the book will be coming out. But what I really hope that I can do more than anything else is the thing I've been wanting to do for 20 years now, which is work exclusively in the sciences. 
I want to collaborate with people who've got labs. There's a colleague at McGill has offered and a colleague at Northeastern has offered. So I can work with other people's data and I can do some theoretical writing and I want to contribute to the sciences. I've been working toward this for years, but at Berkeley, with that many classes, it's just not possible. Yeah. So I want to have another life after I retire in the sciences. Related to music and cognition or just more of psychology? Yeah, I like this discipline a lot, you know, music perception and cognition. In particular, I'm very, very, very fond of researching the auditory path, how human auditory processing happens. And I'm also very interested in how musical training in childhood shapes the auditory path. Mm. So those are the sorts of topics I'm most interested in. But you never know where science is going to lead you. Sometimes something great comes up and it takes you somewhere else. Very cool. You just said something that reminded me that I was going to bring up. Have you read Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code? Oh, yes. That was an eye-opener for me about how like practice and the brain all like comes together. And I was yeah. like, oh, that makes so much sense to me. But uh, yeah. our listeners can uh, take that little piece of that and then go figure out what's up with uh, Daniel Coyle's book. <laughs> yeah, that's a good little book. I- I've recommended it to students. I like that book. Yeah, it's excellent. Susan, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. There's so many fascinating things that like I want to listen to this again to remind myself. Mm-hmm. I super appreciate you taking the time. So. Thank you so much, Travis. It's a real pleasure meeting and talking with you and I hope we get to do it again sometime. Yes, for sure. And before we go, remind our listeners the name of the book or if there's anywhere you want to direct them on the internet. Great. No, I don't have a website for the book or anything yet, but it's going to be called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Well, thank you so much. Have a great evening and a good end of the semester and hope to uh, see you around again sometime. Oh, that would be lovely. Nice to meet you, Travis. Thank you. That's it for episode 58. Thanks so much to Dr. Susan Rogers for coming on the show. Please, please be sure to check out her book when it comes out. I will remind all of you. And obviously, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please share it with a friend and consider dropping a review over on Apple Podcasts. And finally, don't forget to join us at completeproducer.net. And I'll see you next time.